Hello friends, and welcome to a bit of a longer unorthodoxy episode, which is the fourth reflection on this time of pandemic. I've been very encouraged to learn that some of you have found what I've been saying so far helpful. Like all of you, I'm still in the process of coming to grips with what's happening around me and in me at this time, but I'm very grateful that what I've said so far has brought more light than heat. In this episode, I want to explore a tool for coping with the current pandemic, a way of figuring out how the current apocalypse might prepare us for a post-apocalyptic future. Before I can introduce the tool and how it might help us, though, some introductory remarks are essential. In his story, The Descent into the Maelstrom, Edgar Allan Poe imagines a sailor caught in a huge maelstrom or whirlpool in the middle of a fishing expedition. Soon he realizes that he'll be sucked into that whirlpool, so he starts studying the maelstrom, observing how the vortex works. He sees soon enough that some things disappear and some things reappear, and then by fixing himself to what reappears, he finds salvation. The apocalyptic Thomistic media prophet Marshall McLuhan, whose work is central to the thinking in this episode, says the following after referring to this same story in his 1979 lecture, Man and Media. Pattern recognition in the midst of a huge, overwhelming, destructive force is the way out of the maelstrom. McLuhan is referring specifically to media, that is to man-made technologies, but his thinking is vital to enduring and surviving and even thriving in this time of literal and emotional contagion and, of course, in the media storm around it. McLuhan argues that our natural instincts cannot be trusted when survival is at issue, at least in part because our natural instincts are reactive rather than proactive, but also because they are geared more for natural rather than man-made environments. What is key in this time of pandemic is that the human response to the contagion is to generate particular man-made environments, whether in terms of epidemiological systems theories or field hospitals or online group chat platforms, things like that. After cautioning us against going with our instincts, or at least merely going with our instincts, McLuhan refers to a passage in Anthony Storr's The Human Aggression, in which Storr observes something about bomber pilots in relation to a man-made environment. And I'll get to obviously why this is important to mention, even though it will at first seem very unrelated. Storr explains the following. The majority of bomber pilots, given a can of petrol and told to pour it over a child of three and ignite it, would probably disobey the order. Yet, put a decent man in an airplane a few hundred feet above a village and he will kill without compunction. He will drop high explosives and napalm, inflict appalling pain and injury on men, women and children. The distance between him and the people he's bombing make them into an impersonal target. No longer human beings like himself with whom he can identify. I mention this example here because what Storr is getting at, and which I think is essential to navigating our own time of crisis, is that how the situation is mediated for us and by us is going to play a massive and irreversible role in determining where we land up. 
often at this time people act in thoroughly inhuman ways, allowing people to die alone, for instance, or treating people disrespectfully because they have allowed the coronavirus itself to have total control over mediating systems. My previous episode on scapegoating in the midst of this pandemic has been proven predictive of even more nastiness, unfortunately. I know, for instance, of an old woman in South Africa who, having recovered from the coronavirus, returned home only to receive death threats from her neighbours. While COVID-19 is probably not man-made, although there is some conspiring going on that would contest such an optimistic assessment, the reality is that it calls the man-made environment into sharp relief. The pandemic is intricately connected, I would say, to the way that the global village is set up via aeroplanes, border control, health systems and Wi-Fi and so on. But again, to be able to understand the nature of this connection to man-made environments, we need to understand the patterns of the pandemic itself. We need to see beyond the figures to understand the ground that we are walking on. And this brings me, at last, to that tool I was talking about. Marshall McLuhan, together with his son Eric, developed what is known as the Tetrad of Media Effects which they intended as a kind of survival kit for any media maelstrom, and which I think is a survival kit for life itself, especially life in the midst of this pandemic. Throughout his career, McLuhan was not just interested in analysing media, but wanted to offer tools to allow others to do the same. His 1964 book, Understanding Media, offers his first attempt at providing such tools, especially in the first seven chapters. Later, with Eric McLuhan, he developed his so-called Tetrad. In Eric and Marshall's book, Laws of Media, published first in 1988, the two authors say that they found that everything man makes and does, every process, every style, every artifact, every poem, song, painting, gimmick, gadget, theory, technology, every product of human effort manifested the same four dimensions. These four dimensions reflect the metaphoric or analogical structure of cognition, which I've spoken about on this podcast before, namely how we always see the world through other things, a subject I'm going to return to in the next episode as we round off the series. The core question around anything in the world is the apocalyptic question. What does this bring out in me or in us or in reality? In other words, Following this idea that everything in the world has a wordy or linguistic structure, the word made flesh, essentially, we can ask how any utterance is an outerance. We can ask now, for instance, how the COVID-19 pandemic is an outerance of our innerance, or maybe our ignorance. Again, as in previous episodes, I'm not talking about the virus itself, or epidemiology, or medical care, although these things are obviously hugely important at this time. I am talking about the event of COVID-19 and what this event is doing to and in us. To answer that core question of how this event or medium acts apocalyptically, we need McLuhan's Tetrad, which asks four more questions. Namely, what does it enhance or intensify or exaggerate? What does it render obsolete or displace or downplay? 
what does it retrieve that was previously obsolesced, and what does it produce or become when pressed to an extreme? You can ask these questions about anything, and while it does take some adjusting to think about this, when you do get used to answering these questions, illumination follows swiftly afterwards. To get the hang of the tetrad, I obviously recommend that you consult McLuhan's work in your own time. But to help us, I'm going to read you a bit from McLuhan's lecture, Man and Media. So here's McLuhan. I will give you a few examples of this pattern, these four phases or stages in the development of any artifact whatever. I have in front of me, in isolation from other things, a camera. By its snapshotting, it enhances aggression and private power over people. It obsolesces privacy. It retrieves the past as present. It brings back the big game hunter. Bringing him home alive means bringing people home alive. Photographic journalism is very big game hunting. It flips into the public domain. Here McLuhan is essentially uh, predicting Instagram. Then he uses the example of the clock. The clock amplifies work. Until the clock was invented, what we call work was almost impossible to organize. It obsolesces leisure. It retrieves history as art form by fixed chronology, immeasurable sequential chronology capable of visual time as measured by the clock. It reverses when pushed all the way into the eternal present, a nowness. That last idea is one that Douglas Rushkoff explores rather eloquently and brilliantly in his book, Present Shock. So there you go, a few examples by McLuhan himself. Before I get to the effects of COVID-19 as an environment changer and effectively as an extension of human thought and social structures, I want to point out that there is no single right answer to the four questions of the Tetrad. Also, there is no complete answer. What I present here is going to be incomplete in one way or another because what I've noticed and what you have noticed will certainly differ in some ways, although hopefully not significantly. Note that the trick around any new medium, including any contagion, is that the medium itself will never be its own antidote. And certainly one thing I've found is that in some sense people are imitating the tetradic structure of the pandemic to attempt to cope with it. This is a kind of Stockholm syndrome, and I do not think it will work, at least not as a total solution. It will, in fact, make things worse. Whatever antidotes we generate in this climate of pandemonium, they will be attempts to counterbalance the effects of the pandemic itself. So let's look at the four questions, and then I'll get to my attempt to answer. What does the pandemic enhance or intensify? What does the pandemic render obsolete or displace? What does the pandemic retrieve that was previously obsolete? And lastly, what does the pandemic produce or become when pressed to an extreme? Let's look at that first question first. What does the pandemic enhance or intensify? Clearly, the coronavirus pandemic is enhancing an awful lot of things, more things than I can discuss here. First, and perhaps most notably, it enhances the effects of electronic media. In fact, while the current conspiracy theory around how 5G caused or is related to the coronavirus spread is not empirically or literally true, the link between 5G and the virus in the popular consciousness or dream space is not 
totally without meaning. Remember that people want to make sense of the world, and even the most outlandish conspiracy theory will contain a kernel of truth, albeit a symbolic truth that has been confused with a literal truth. One of the things that COVID-19 has done is enhance our reliance on electronic media. It is amplifying information, as well as the delusion that we have a larger range of influence and control than we really do. The almost unbelievable obsession with data at this time is one example of how COVID acts as an amplification of the internet itself, which renders reality as information and abstraction. Linked with this first enhancement is the massive trend towards overstressing the realm of the mind, a kind of Gnostic or Manichean realm. I will say more about this idea when talking about what COVID retrieves and obsolesces, but for now suffice it to say that the trend has been to push everything into the head, into a space of disembodiment, especially with regard to coping. This renders people more powerless than usual, where everything is handled remotely and where mental illness and mental distress, as many have noted, become major concerns. In a sense, our arms and legs have been cut off and our problems need to be dealt with merely abstractly, that is, intellectually and emotionally. Almost everything now must be done online online food orders, online education, online friendships, online work, online meetings. I'm not all that secretly hoping that this COVID event is overheating the internet, something that I've been waiting for for quite some time, preparing us, in a way, for something of a flip into the post-apocalyptic. Remember that the post-apocalyptic world is always embodied, highly aware of the fragility of life and the self, and its need for a kind of power other than itself. No one has a working cell phone in a post-apocalyptic world, and I think this is symbolically significant. It intimates an unconscious desire for people to be freed from the net, from being wrapped in a world of wires. I'm getting a bit ahead of myself. Still, ahead of any flip into the post-apocalyptic, we are not there yet. I want to simply point out that this Gnostic shift, this dualistic Manichean shift, is a massive mistake. The antidote to the pandemic's effects is not going to be an online antidote, which is merely reactive to a poisoned material realm. Rather, the solution, if, if I could even use that phrase, is, is going to be a different way of being present, being embodied, a different way of mediating between spirit and flesh. This is somewhat sensed in something else that the pandemic enhances, namely the concern for boundaries. So second, COVID-19 enhances border control in the physical world. It enhances public borders, I should say, but also erases and blurs private borders and causes people to be obsessed with purity, hygiene, and other personal space controlling strategies. At the macro level, this is most notable in the way that the pandemic has extended and amplified governmental control, and in the way that it simultaneously plays up governmental failures. A meme has gone around with a picture of Stalin. He's got a kind of heart shape created by his hands, and the meme asks people if they're enjoying their 30-day free trial of communism. 
The meme made me laugh, obviously, but behind this joke is a serious grievance. Public freedoms have been diminished, if not obsolesced. Before we get into what COVID-19 flips into when exaggerated, one way to think about this is that the pandemic has converted or flipped democracy into totalitarianism. Yes, we should be wary of this trend, especially if it sticks here and there, although I would hasten to add that it is by no means inevitable that this totalitarianism will remain. The possible should not be taken as inevitable, unless we want to render ourselves mere puppets of fate. The incompetence of even the most apparently competent governments across the globe has been quite something to witness, and supposedly incompetent governments, those that are more familiar with states of crisis like my own country's government, are handling things a lot better than many would have expected, even in a way that many first-worlders have praised and found exemplary. This surprises many, but in a way it shouldn't be all that surprising. After all, the presumption of more developed countries is that everything is running smoothly and should be maintained, whereas more developing countries assume that everything is broken and therefore needs to be repaired. In a way, the state of crisis is more normal for countries that don't run particularly smoothly normally. No one, of course, is going to get out of this totally unscathed, and it would be a mistake to assume, just because things are going okay-ish now in South Africa, for instance, that we are out of the proverbial woods. The predictions are still pretty bleak, although hope is not dead anywhere in the world yet. Still, we shouldn't be still we shouldn't be that surprised that our assumptions and defaults are being seriously challenged. This always happens when the new medium or event like this pandemic shows up. Arguably, its prime function is to unsettle and alarm, to generate a new kind of awareness. I would venture to say that all things considered, the coronavirus is fairly mild, and the fact that the world is being forced into being educated about basic epidemiology and strategies for coping with this could even function as a preparatory step for something in the future, another plague perhaps, that is actually worse. In a way, the world is developing its immunity to more than just COVID-19. Unfortunately, as I said, while larger borders are being controlled, smaller ones are being compromised, especially with regard to how people function in their homes. We are still on the question of what this pandemic is enhancing or exaggerating, and Technically, this is a matter of what the pandemic is obsolescing, but I'm going to mention it here since it relates so directly to the strengthening of larger national and corporate borders. Arguably, it is precisely the over-control of larger borders that has caused the eradication of borders within private spaces. Now, for instance, people everywhere are being forced to operate in their private spaces as whoever the higher powers are, want them to. Homes are being dehomed or unhomed and turned into gyms and workspaces and schools. I would just say that we should beware of this. Take back your spaces if you can, if you want to stay sane, or at least find ways to healthily manage your space and time to regulate what has otherwise become quite destabilized. 
Again, this hijacking of the home by the powers that be, whether political, commercial, or educational, has a distinctly totalitarian flavor. Many governments, South Africa's included, have been using cell phone tracking to check that people are adhering to the rules of lockdown and quarantine. The surveillance of citizens has increased, sometimes necessarily and for good reason. But I want to stress that this is not totally new and shouldn't be all that surprising, especially because of the way that this event is interconnected with the electronic media sphere. For a long time now, in the wake of the internet, private spaces have been invaded by corporations and governments and shops and other social processes. The real change is not in kind, but in degree. Many of us are simply feeling a much greater interference in our personal lives than we are accustomed to. COVID is heating the internet up. It is exaggerating the influence of online informational spaces. Pay attention to this. Much of what is perceived as new, in fact, has a predecessor within our own lifetime. Yes, the coronavirus spread may be unprecedented, but people remain remarkably predictable when it comes to their responses to crises. Much of what we are seeing now, we have seen before, albeit for different reasons. There's also a much more personal dimension to all of this enhancement, too, and you will need to pay attention to yourself to figure out how it's playing out for you and in your own psyche. In various conversations with people and through some self-observation too, I can tell that the pandemic has exposed and enhanced a number of subconscious or unconscious desires and drives in people. And yes, given so many external restrictions, this is a time in which the individual is forced to come to terms with himself or herself, even if the greater thrust of the globe is thoroughly communal. If you are aware of Jung's cognitive functions, and I've talked about Jungian typology on this podcast before, pay attention to the repressed inferior function in yourself that is the opposite of your dominant cognitive function. The event of this contagion is likely to trigger any number of opposite or unexpected behaviors in people where, for instance, thinker-dominant types become obsessively concerned with what people are feeling, or where intuitive types fuss with sensate things. If you are more familiar with the Enneagram as a kind of typology model, you will notice probably how your so-called point of disintegration or stress is activated, especially if you're having a bad day. Of course, this is not an absolute predictor, but it is helpful to keep in mind. Just pay attention to where this time of imbalance is taking you. There are, I know, a lot of negatives in all that I've said so far, and I've left out a lot too. But I do want to point out that there are positives too. You have seen, I'm sure, a kind of revival of creativity in the way that people being forced into staying in their homes can spark an amazing time of self-reflection, can even deepen the prayerful awareness of anyone willing to let the stress of this time take them there. Nearly three weeks into a predicted five-week lockdown, I can say that I've enjoyed being at home immensely and look forward to more of the same. This family time has been an incredible gift. Sure, I have struggled at times with figuring out how to reconfigure this space and to plan my time better, especially now that the borders between work and home life have been blurred. My main complaint, however, has been with the corporate mindset of those beyond the walls of our homes, whose aim has been to attempt 
a kind of business as usual without due consideration of the unusual. They have invaded homes trying to establish how their employees must run their lives. Even though it seems obvious to me that the concrete particularity of each individual's home situation renders demands from above more ludicrous than usual. With that in mind, let's get to the second question. What does the pandemic render obsolete or displace? Obviously, for starters, it has obsolesced material reality, and along with that, anyone's sense of calm and security and predictability. Again, in reality, this is not a new thing, but an extension of the original obsolescence of materiality by electronic media. By obsolescing our sense of security in the usual concrete order of things, the pandemic has also set up the conditions for an enormous amount of stress, anxiety, pressure, and various other emotional outbursts, anger, unrest, panic, and more. If you are feeling... If you discover that you're acting in ways that are not quite in keeping with your usual patterns of behaving, if you find, for instance, that you are more emotional than usual, don't worry about it. You are not alone, for one thing, but you're also not going crazy. You are probably grieving. You are, whether consciously or unconsciously, very likely mourning the death of an old world that you were comfortable with, that you knew and understood, even if it was far from perfect. Yes, COVID-19 is obsolescing and displacing, that is, rendering less potent old ways of doing things. And there is, naturally, some uncertainty that accompanies this. One of the things that the pandemic is obsolescing, at least as it seems right now, is the current economic system. Although at the time of my recording this in mid-April 2020, we don't yet fully understand what this means. We are dealing with potentiality, not actuality. We can predict, for instance, that some economic reforms will happen, good, bad, or indifferent. We can also be sure that this will have huge and wide-ranging effects on all kinds of people, good, bad, or indifferent. We already know that a major global recession is a done deal, although precisely what this means for you and me, for the countries we live in, and for the world in general, well, as I said, we don't exactly know yet. And not knowing, well, the one thing we know about not knowing is that it is hugely unsettling. For some people, actual relationships are being obsolesced or might be obsolesced, whether by death or by separation or just by conflict arising in the midst of a terrifying time. Or maybe it is simply that a particular familiar way of relating people is undergoing a change. I know it seems strange, but... I worry somewhat that handshakes and hugs are being obsolesced. Is touching being obsolesced? Haptic communication? Certainly, simple gestures of respect and affection are being rendered unintelligible within the current state of the world. And I wonder, will these things return? And how? Will we all bow to each other, as many people in other cultures do? Will we adopt wearing masks in public even after COVID has passed? Are masks soon to become a new fashion marker? Nowadays, shops only allow a certain number of people inside to make it possible to keep social distancing policies. Will this carry on too? Will online meetings become normal when professional people are allowed to return to work? 
Will universities and schools rely more and more on the internet than they did before when things calm down? Will any of this stick when lockdown is down? Will the beautiful clear skies that have resulted from less air pollution around the world stay clear? Will people be germ freaks when all of this is done? At this point, we don't know exactly. Again, this pandemic functions very much like electronic media, as the extension of the internet and cell phones. By enhancing range and scope and pushing information into a service environment by a brutal simultaneity, electronic media obsolesce the visual world of clear and directed perspective. Single points of view become nearly impossible. The connected, logical, and rational become strangely archaic modes of perceiving when everything seems to be happening all at once, acoustically, from all directions. Some time before the virus came to South Africa, I had a dream that my world was being engulfed in a thick black cloud of dust coming at me from all angles. And this captured for me how this can feel like a plague of locusts blocking out the sun. Because of a sense of overwhelm in the midst of the plague, even where statistics and figures and scientific data are communicated, people make use of these things in thoroughly irrational ways. Conspiracy theories, as you all know, are abounding as never before, which is to say that organized ignorance is rampant, at least more rampant than usual. In fact, I think it is arguably the most difficult thing to grapple with at this time. We are not yet clear on what COVID-19 is in fact obsolescing and what kind of world it is establishing. We know that it is in the process of instituting massive changes through the ways that people respond to it, but we are not yet clear on precisely what these changes will be. And so to this, I simply want to say, here is where some action is called for. We need to be like the fishermen in Poe's story, looking very carefully for what is disappearing and reappearing, figuring out how to attach ourselves to what is reappearing. It is not enough to merely passively watch as the world becomes something else. Arguably, this is where each of us can make something of a difference. We can take this time to really deeply consider what is valuable, what should be valued, and how life should look. If anything, there is something in this time of plague that has reminded me of the biblical notion of a year of jubilee, although currently this is not exactly how this is playing out. During the year of Jubilee, personal liberty was proclaimed, property restored, fields left to rest, where simplicity of life was valued again. During this time of, you could say, political sabbatical, it may be possible for you, if you're not allowed to work as normal, to think about what kind of life you want. What kind of life do you want to live? What kind of life would be more honoring to God and to those you love and to the world beyond you? How could life be more in tune with the ultimately real? At the very least, try to see some way to encourage COVID-19's obsolescent flow to obsolesce things that should be obsolesced, and maybe fight against the erasure of those things that should be preserved and celebrated. I, for one, am going to do whatever I can to celebrate and appreciate the company of people more than I did before. 
We don't have control over everything, of course, but we do have a say over some things, and we might as well try to make good things happen in the midst of this time. Think of it this way. COVID-19 functions like a new kind of hardware, and so all of us are tasked with developing the kind of software that will be able to cope with this new hardware. The software we have right now is a bit glitchy because we don't understand the hardware completely, but it can be updated. We can change the way we think and how that affects how we act. We can do this in proactive ways, thinking carefully through what patterns are being manifested and how to respond to these. Or I guess we could simply go with the flow, which is definitely not what I'm recommending in isolation from taking some kind of action. We will need to work together to figure out the best way of dealing with all of this. We will need to figure out what our responsibility is as individuals, but just passively waiting for the plague to pass, that is not ideal. So now, the third question. What does this pandemic retrieve? What does this pandemic fetch from the past that we have forgotten about? One of the metaphors that has cropped up is that it reminds people of wartime. It's a kind of wartime scenario. I'm not going to go into that, but what I would say is that most obviously it retrieves a sense of the environment as a threat. This is a profoundly primal or primordial thing. Arguably, it is this terror, this terror of environmental catastrophe on your doorstep that was the chief terror of the ancients. It was certainly for this reason that the gods were so connected to natural things like the ocean and storms and springtime harvest, and why when the natural world rebelled against human desires, the assumption was that the gods were angry. With the world reframed as somewhat malicious, our sense of vulnerability has been enhanced, our fearfulness, our confusion and uncertainty. In general, in a pre-COVID-19 world, I would assume most of us would pay little attention to what we touch. I mean, we'd be vaguely aware that trolleys in shops are gross and that germs are everywhere, but now, gosh, that publicly accessible object becomes almost luminescent, glowing green in our minds with terrifying possibilities. It is not just a trolley, but a kind of petri dish full of horrors. It is not just an object anymore, but a a possible plot point that could entirely alter your life and the lives of others. Suddenly everything in the world is like this. Shoes become contagion carriers and not just feet coverers, for instance, and people become excommunicants, possible carriers of what is essentially a demon, an invisible monster that may or may not be there. Suddenly people are being brutally confronted with the plight of a lonely person as never before. This somewhat mirrors and retrieves the ancient Manichaean and Gnostic myths about how it was the devil that made the physical world, while God made the spiritual world. This is decidedly, from a narrative perspective at least, against the God of the Christian scriptures who is incarnate, embodied, entwined in the physical world. Even in the Jewish non-Trinitarian reading of the creation story, when God says, let us make man in our image, the idea is that God is making humanity with humanity. That's what the hour signifies. It's God and man. So the plural there is an incarnational image. God makes the world with us as embodied souls. It's good to be reminded of Chesterton's dictum that the work of heaven is material, 
while the work of hell is entirely spiritual. The great threat of retrieving the Manichaeanism that radically splits the material and the spiritual world is that it might be mimetically replicated in any so-called religious response to it. I've seen this, for instance, in how some evangelicals have disdained the materiality of the virus spreading in favor of going ahead with meeting in public. Much Protestantism is theologically primed, unfortunately, to replicate Manichaean dualism, and you can see this especially in John Piper's appalling book Christ and the Coronavirus, which should never have been published. Piper is a dualist of the first order, even though he replicates this dualism in a uniquely Calvinistic way, where the disease is a parable told by God of what is going wrong with us in regard to sin. So you can already see how he splits the material and the spiritual. And yes, I kid you not, this is literally something he argues. God is in some sense the originator of the virus. He is the parable teller using this terrible sickness. Well, this dualism stands in strong contrast to the great Christian tradition, which sees Christ as the mediator of all reality. Whatever religious response we adopt, it cannot involve negating the material realm. In fact, to adopt anything like this would merely be, as I see it, to mimic what is being affected already by the coronavirus pandemic. Part of my point here is that if you are a symbolic thinker like I am, it is really fine to ask questions about how to stay sensibly hygienic, as well as clued up about how best to help fight the spread of the coronavirus in practical ways. The material world is something we need to properly tackle. Which brings me, at last, to the final question. What does the pandemic produce or become when pressed to an extreme? The idea, remember, is that every medium, when overheated, will reverse on itself. Every medium can turn on itself. An overheated highway turns into a nightmarish traffic jam, for instance, just as a too overheated movie or TV series full of depravity and violence soon becomes boring. And while COVID-19 isn't a medium, it is, as I've argued, an outering of inner space, something bound up in our experiences of the world that it is currently unmaking and remaking. Linked to the problematic dualism I've already talked about is the possibility that focusing too much attention on this thing will generate indifference to it. I've seen this happen in some places already. This is arguably the most dangerous of the outcomes where caring too much about the contagion will lead people to avoid trying to understand it. I also see the possibility, as I've already hinted, of this overheating of the internet producing in people a kind of pleasant appreciation of the more earthy and material dimension of existence. This would be a flipping of all this online meeting into an appreciative space of actual meeting in the flesh, in the future. The image of this is captured somewhat in the Matrix movie trilogy, where the overheating of the matrix as a medium produces a revulsion of that absolute mind space that helps people to be freed from it. And in that film, especially in the second film in the trilogy, the freed enter Zion, a very embodied space. The matrix trilogy, however, while trying to hint towards a kind of non-dual consciousness, nevertheless tends to represent falling into the trap of a kind of dualism, 
mind is replaced by matter. It's not really at peace with it. The post-apocalyptic possibility that I happen to be hoping for is a return, at least for many, to a new and grateful attunement to the bridge between the spiritual and the material, between mind and body, in the richest of senses. I'm hoping for a kind of Eucharistic, sacramental revival. At least, this is what I hope to participate in setting up in my immediate world. There are other possible flips of this pandemic, of course, where, for instance, totalitarianism could flip into anarchy, where the overactivity of many corporations flips into stupefaction and slothfulness, where the creativity sparked in this time flips into consumerist subservience. There are many, many possibilities, and I would be wary of any of them, wary, that is, of any form of of exaggerated thinking or behavior that refuses to consider more than just one side of a complex network of thoughts and actions. It is no doubt a time of extremes, and to find any kind of antidote to it, we need to arrive at first a very clear sense of the patterns evident at this time, and second, a clear sense of what we are going to do to stay balanced, sane, and most importantly, human. So that is it from me for now. Grace and peace to all of you.